Welcome to Show Cause, the official podcast of the University of Memphis School of Law. I'm Ryan Jones, the Director of Communications at the Law School, and I'll be your host for this podcast as we attempt to examine and explain some of the legal and cultural issues at play in the world today. That was Stephen Hawking, one of the world's most well-known theoretical physicists and scientists, talking about artificial intelligence and the often repeated fear of its eventual dominance over the human race. We're not quite at that point of concern yet, but AI has been at the forefront of the news cycle in recent weeks, both in academic circles as well as more broadly in pop culture. That's mostly because of the arrival of one new AI tool in particular. ChatGPT is a new chatbot program, which is capable of writing convincing essays, solving science and math problems, and producing functional computer code. It's already caused quite the stir in the world of higher education, with students using it to write their assignments and passing off AI-generated essays as their own, leaving professors and administrators scrambling to keep up. There's been an initial wave of widespread concern among academics about the impact this has in the classroom and what it means for the future of teaching, learning, ethics in the classroom, and much more. But, as with all new technologies, there is more to ChatGPT and new AI technology than it appears at first glance. Within weeks of ChatGPT's unveiling, new anti-plagiarism programs were developed and adopted across the country. Many teachers went from feeling hopeless to utilizing the new AI programs as tools for idea generation or conversation starters in the classroom. In short, a middle ground seems to be forming. But the technology is still new, and its repercussions are still being felt out, especially in the world of legal education and the larger legal industry, where change has been traditionally slower to take hold. So, in today's episode of Show Cause, we'll speak with two of our very own Memphis Law professors to talk about the fears, implications, ideas, applications, and future of AI programs like ChatGPT and the broader concept of technology's impact in the classroom. Jody Wilson is currently an Associate Professor of Law and the Associate Dean for Academic Affairs at the Law School. Dean Wilson is a nationally recognized authority on legal writing and legal methods and has served as President of the Association of Legal Writing Directors in the past, as well as in several other leadership positions within that organization and the Legal Writing Institute. Also included among her track record of success is her recognition for creative and innovative methods of including ethics and professionalism into teaching marked by her being the inaugural recipient of the Patricia and Dan Mural Ethics and Professionalism Teaching Award. Jennifer Brobst is a recent addition to the Memphis Law faculty, having joined the law school in fall 2022 as an assistant professor. She currently teaches torts, professional responsibility, and health law courses. Her scholarly work primarily focuses on the intersection of health law and criminal law, as well as legal approaches to privacy, liberty interests, and the impact of science and technology. I found our conversation to be really interesting and one that touched on lots of different elements pertaining to the crossover between new technology and how to teach students in today's world. I hope you enjoy the show. This is Show Cause. All right. 
Thanks for listening to another episode of Show Cause with us. As I'm sure you heard during the intro, we're going to talk a little bit about AI chat programs today. It's a really hot topic. Um, the news has been kind of changing daily, and it's something that I thought listeners would find interesting to address here from a law school and legal arena perspective. And as I mentioned earlier in the intro, we've got two great Memphis law folks with us here today. We have Dean Jody Wilson with us, as well as Professor Jennifer Brobst. Thanks to both of you for joining me, having a little discussion as we elaborate on this. Thanks, Ryan. Thank you. Good to be here. Thanks. So there's a lot in the news about these new uh, artificial intelligence chat programs. In the realm of higher education, it uh, the chat GPT uh, program has kind of gotten a lot of the attention and a lot of things have come out where professors and higher education people have expressed a little bit of concern that they might be used by students to generate essays or other work, pass it off as their own. Um, I know that it's across the, the larger spectrum of higher education, it's a concern, but I thought we'd start off by seeing if each of you could talk a little bit about is, is this an actual concern for law schools um, as it's compared to other realms of higher education? And, and if so, where would that come into play uh, as a, as a, a point of concern? It definitely caught my eye because it uh, sounds clever and it sounds like it might be difficult to detect, but from what I hear, the software is too good. And some professors are finding that it's beautifully written, but uh, substantively weird. And so I do think that it, just like all plagiarism, we're going to have to look for this, but it almost reminds me of a giant cut and paste too, where I've noticed students who plagiarize will take a whole section, say from a law review article and then a different law review article. Whereas this is one big, one big, you know, creation. Uh, so I don't think we'll see it much, but I have a feeling other companies will develop something similar and it will become more available. Yeah, I think right now the the technology that is out there, although um, leaps and bounds better than what I think we, we thought existed prior to um, chat GPT's arrival or this most recent version of its arrival, um, what is there now certainly has a lot of tells, like the, the text has a, a pretty consistent voice. Um, the sentences have a certain pattern to them, pattern to them. Um, I'll back it up, Ryan. Okay. The, the sentences have a certain pattern to them and the word choice is a flag. I'll put it that way. Okay. But I do think we're going to see things getting better. Uh, and I think over time, things are going to develop. And so it's a concern in the sense that I think there's a possibility students will try to use it or maybe use it as a starting point and then develop it. Um, and certainly, I will say law schools, at least to the extent a class is still under the traditional final exam or, or midterm exam and final exam closed book model, I think it will be less of an issue in those classes in terms of outright cheating. What I am thinking we need to work with in, in terms of our students is helping them understand 
understand that technology, understand where it's coming from, and why taking shortcuts in order to to get to an end product is not ideal when you you cut out the process by which you get to the end product. Um, And that's a challenge we've had forever. Right. Like with any new technology, um, it it can look threatening at at first, but then um, once the dust settles, it might not be as big a threat or you start to see some advantages to it. Um, I've seen some stuff come out recently with law professors on both sides of the matter. And I think when you talk about working with students to, to best utilize it or deal with it, it makes me, I would like to kind of get your, both of your opinion on, you know, what, I don't think the technology is going anywhere. Right. So it's going to be there. Um, you, you can't put a ban on on the usage of it. There'll always be a workaround. So what are what are some of the positives that can come out of the utilization of technology like this? Um, I've seen some other other um, academics weigh in that, you know, it, it, it could be a starting point for ideas, idea generation, or it could help with outlines. It could be like a, a tool uh like a calculator is to math, you know, something to um, help you still arrive at the end product, but the, the, you still do the work. So how do you see law schools using programs like this, maybe to, to the student's advantage, um, whether it's in the classroom or even if it is um, forecasting how it might be used in, in the professional uh, arena after they graduate law school, um, teaching them to, um, kind of stay ahead of the curve curve and utilize these technologies going forward. So how could it be advantageous rather than the 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 fear-mongering that we've heard uh, initially? Well, every new technology cuts both ways, and it's up to us to use it the right way and experiment until we do. We are bound as attorneys and licensed attorneys to be competent in the use of technology and legal tech is essential to mm-hmm. practice of law. The, I think this type of uh, technology where you're kind of creating um, kind of human communications and it's supposed to feel that way reminds me a bit of automatically generated articles in journalistic pieces. You know, we see this in newspapers all the time and you don't necessarily have a journalist listed up there. It may be that it was created by a machine and they tend to be fairly uncomplicated articles. I could see how a student really ought to learn how to use it if they have a small firm and they need to generate marketing materials or they wanna generate just basic blog information for the public on an area of law and that the human is better suited for the complicated communications and the um, individualistic needs of clients. And I think the the technology can really be used if we think of it as a resource and a tool that Mm -hmm. um, makes us more efficient. So one example um, that I I was thinking about when I was um, in practice, one of the things we often had to do was translate things from the the legal technical version into something more understandable for the client. And so one of the things I think you can do with with chat GPT and and other products like it, 
feed in the legal technology, the legal language, and ask it to put it into plain language um, that is easily understandable. I think you can even specify it at a, a certain grade level. Now, what's key about that, and, and this is what's so important about the technical competence and understanding the role of technology in what we're doing, is when we do that, we still have to put into place our expertise as a lawyer to review the output. Um, but it can be a lot more efficient if I'm starting with a draft mm -hmm. uh, and, and then I lay over my knowledge. And so I think helping our students understand that you can't, you can't do that. You can't put your knowledge on top and make sure that the end result is quality unless you have that knowledge, unless you have the skill in the first place. So one of the things we always try to explain to students um, is the importance of developing the underlying skills. And this comes up with any technology. We teach this in legal methods with research and writing, and particularly with research. When we're mm -hmm. teaching them how to use Westlaw, Lexis, Bloomberg, they have to understand what the end game is and what is quality case, what is an appropriate case, what isn't, in order to make sure that what they're getting out of Westlaw and Lexis is right, that it's what they need to find. And so although there are shortcuts they can use, their shortcuts are not going to work if they don't understand how to evaluate the end product. And so helping them learn how to evaluate the end product and understand why it's so important that they develop the skills independently before they start looking to um, certain efficiency tools when they won't have the ability to evaluate the quality of the end product if they haven't developed the underlying skills. Right. And one thing chat GPT could never do or any AI software is actually care about right. what they're writing about. <laughs> they don't care at all. And right. it uh, runs counter to why we all become lawyers to imagine that there would be something drafted or a student would use this software to, for example, write about human rights. <laughs> I want them to process and think about why that matters. I taught wrongful death in class today. You know, I can't imagine them not facing the difficulty of that and what lawyers have to face mm -hmm. in taking these cases. Mm -hmm. And we we can't let them take shortcuts on the human side of what our practice is. Right. And it also, I think skill set withers. Um, it's not that they don't learn it. Even if they had skills, it will die on the vine when you see something like autonomous vehicles and they have research that even the humans monitoring the vehicles get bored, get distracted, um, lose mm -hmm. their skill set if they have to take over. <laughs> it's not a good idea to have us in critical positions not be capable. Right. You can't lose the human element of it. Right. I mean, I think we touched upon this in a previous discussion in that, you know, essentially becoming an attorney on some level is a customer service oriented uh, profession. Right. And mm -hmm. you can't so you can't service the customer with without the human element being involved, because like you just noted, the AI, per, the AI program doesn't care about the human element of this. Yeah, I mean, it. it there are so many characteristics that a, a human brings to the the experience that AI cannot replicate. Problem solving, adaptation, empathy, collaboration, mm -hmm. emotional intelligence, and and at this point, certainly even critical thinking. You know, sort of circling back to your question of how much is the how much is this really a problem? If we are structuring really effective assessments that require um, critical thinking, deep analysis 
then it is much less of a problem because at least at this point, the AI is not very good at that. It's very surface level. Right. Um, it's better at synthesis than it is at critical thinking. Right. So as do you see, you know, as, as someone who's been involved in legal ethics before and who oversees a lot of the codes, codes of conduct and things like that here, is this something that, you know, are we going to have to come up? Maybe not us specifically. I don't want to pin you down like that, but other law schools are, are there going to have to be new strategies uh, that come into play to combat this new technology? Um, I've seen other other professors talk about, you know, revising codes of conduct, to, um, disclosing what technology they've used uh, on their assignments, and even to the point of um, closing the laptops and doing handwritten assignments uh, in class. Like, are are we as a profession, are we going to get there, or is this just something um, that you know, won't bring, bring that into play. We, we should always be evaluating our code of conduct and making sure that it's clear, right? And clear in face of new developments. So I think, is it worth it for every school to look at their code of conduct and to make sure that the language contemplates the use of AI as a resource when using AI is not permitted? course. I mean, I think we want to make sure that students know what is permitted and what isn't. I would say most law schools and most professors in their instructions already address this in broader language. Things like the work that you submit must be your own. Mm -hmm. um, and so if you are using AI um, to craft your, your five-page essay, that is not your own work, right, right? Right. So I think probably it's already covered in a lot of ways, but is it worth evaluating to make sure that there's clarity? Yes. Is it worth making it clear to students who may be coming in and have had different experiences with AI that you, that that's included just to make sure there is no um, misunderstanding? Sure. Um, but I, I, again, I think most of us are pretty clear with students um, about they have to do their own work. That means not getting assistance from any person or anything uh, that isn't authorized. And so uh, I think probably that's already addressed. Uh, I also think we want to look at the way we assess. And as you said, there are some approaches to it. Okay, now we're going to entirely closed book in-class exams, uh, which would prohibit students from, from accessing chat GPT or similar technology. But I also think we'll see even more of a shift towards, or at least I'd like to see us uh, make even more of a shift towards process rather than output and doing things that really evaluate students' deep understanding, and whether that's you know, working with students with drafts, having meetings with students about the work that they are creating and making sure that they can communicate with you orally about it. Those sorts of things, I think, can become a big part of the way we assess to really focus on um, depth of knowledge and understanding. One of the bigger challenges already, of course, is Quimby and programs like that. And for the listeners not familiar with it, it's Q-U-I-M-B-E-E. -E. And I remember looking at this program a while back and being surprised recently on how good it's gotten. So it has case briefs and outlines. Um, related to every single case in my casebook. And uh, students can just print off a case brief, they can print off an outline, and we can tell them not to do it, but it's there. Mm -hmm. And as a fairly experienced instructor, I can tell when they've used it and I can um, 
put a little pressure on them and the students who don't do it and do the thinking for themselves. Uh, that's very apparent in class. And I try to, you know, use a carrot there and reward that. But all of that is is definitely out there. And I'm beginning to question the utility, to be honest, of these traditional case books. I think, you know, an item that that you touched on, Jody, about assessment kind of jumped out at me. And I, I'm not sure if either of you read this it came out earlier, maybe a couple of week, a week or two ago, but um, two scholars from, I believe, Michigan State College of Law and the other uh, Chicago Kent College of Law, they ran an analysis and a test with the using the chat GPT and the bar exam, specifically the mm -hmm. uh, the MBE. MBE. And it came when you talk about assessment, it made me think about this. They uh, found that the the GPT product reached the average passing rate on that for two topics, I believe, like evidence and torts specifically. So I don't know. I can't speculate on why those two were easier for AI to address, but it does make me think is, is the bar exam, uh, are, are the people that administer the bar exam, are they going to have to change the way that they assess, um, assess things? Well, they're in the middle of it already. Uh, so we have the next gen True. bar coming. Right. Um, so they are currently completely revising it, but I think they won't be too worried about it because it's going to continue to be a closed book, um, right. highly proctored exam. So they're right. not going to be concerned about um, students using AI in the midst of the exam. Um, so yeah, that's I, I true. think, yeah. <laughs> But it, I, I think it does call into question, you know, how, how we assess still. I mean, if, if the AI, although again, the AI is pulling knowledge, right? So it's drawing right. on all of that knowledge to, uh, to take and apply towards that question, which is what we are asking students to do as well. It's just a little harder for the students to <laughs> gather the knowledge um, and, and, and then put it as, into work. As, as one of our colleagues said the other day, what's to prevent us as faculty from using software to create our exam questions? Mm -hmm. At which point, in the back of my mind, I was thinking, well, if the professor's using <laughs> that right. and then the students are using it, we can all just, you know, go take a vacation. And <laughs> right. Yeah, I know. I think there, there are a lot of academics out there that I've seen in several articles say, you know, like academics should be scared of this. It's going to, you know, erase the profession, blah, blah, blah. And I think several years ago, um, you know, attorneys in the field had that same fear when um, uh, chat bots started appearing on every single law firm's website at addressing legal concerns, um, from potential clients on the mm -hmm. front end, but it really became more of a filtering agent um, to help get the client to the the right attorney or the right segment of the firm, rather than um, something that uh, that took the attorney out of the equation altogether. Yeah, it was to prevent a faculty member from using it to write a law review article. Well, um, there's actually a and good I question. don't remember. I don't remember who it was, but there is a, a person who published, published. Um, I put air quotes around that, a 14-page article created with GPT. He published it with his co-author being um, Chat GPT. Mm -hmm. um, and I think one of the, what is to present it, one hopes is the, the editor, uh, the, the review and editing process. Although again, with law reviews not being um, peer reviewed, that may be a little more challenging given um, the need to dig in with some expertise. But I do think 
what I would hope would prevent it, um, or at least what should prevent us from doing it, is that, I mean, what chat GPT is doing is surveying the universe that's been fed into it and producing a result. So that means that it is de facto plagiarizing, right? It may not be using the exact words, but it's borrowing ideas from a range of sources which you have no ability. It's a black box, right? We don't know where it's pulling those sources from. We don't know the quality or validity of those sources. Mm -hmm. We don't know the... That's a good point. You know, we don't know anything about what's coming into that piece. And so I would be very concerned about using that in in the context of my own integrity of um, plagiarizing... quote unquote, unintentionally, right? Because I I certainly don't realize that I'm plagiarizing from somebody, but Mm -hmm. except when I recognize what the platform itself is doing. The flip side though, is I think technology, every time new technology comes out, um, especially if it is sort of not just an incremental improvement in the product uh, that already existed, we panic right? <laughs> One of our colleagues in a, a faculty meeting was asking me a chat about chat GPT and we were sort of talking about it. And he said, well, you know, we said the same thing when computers came out and all of a sudden our students wanted to use computers in the law school and in classes. And now we require them to write their final exams on the computer. So we panic and we adjust mm-hmm. and we figure out how to, to use things effectively and efficiently and appropriately. And I think that's where we'll probably end up. I mean, I think we all get inspiration for our exam questions from somewhere. Um, is it possible a professor could make reasonable and appropriate use of chat GPT to help inspire um, some questions? Yes, I would hope. I mean, again, we have to apply our expertise. We have to apply our knowledge and our understanding of what we've taught in the class, what our learning objectives are, and whether a certain question um, meets those objectives. But Perhaps it's an appropriate source or or I should say inspiration, not a source. You know, the um, source the source part's interesting. I hadn't considered that because one of the positives that I thought might come out of it for a student um, would be, uh, you know, um, a tool for a time saving element for for um, a tutoring resource. If, if you know, if an if a advisor or a faculty member isn't available at the time, but. You know, now you've kind of made me think, well, the information being plugged into that AI might not be tutoring them with the correct information. So um, kind of shot down one positive element that I thought might be there. Well, sorry, go ahead. There's also a moral component, of course. We're talking about plagiarism and we're talking about self-pride and it is a profession Mm -hmm. and it's a service profession. And Mm -hmm. frankly, as a student, we all had opportunities to cheat, but we didn't do it because we Mm -hmm. would be embarrassed. Right not to get caught, but be embarrassed to do it because mm-hmm. it implies that we don't have the capability to right. do what is asked of us. And that would make me very sad if my students felt that way, you know, and I feel like it's my job to make sure that they feel empowered enough that they can research and write and serve clients without the need for cheating. Right. And think, so yeah. it's not smart to cheat. Yeah. Well, I mean, right. th- that's part of the the role of a law professor or the law school is to instill some of those ethics and, and pass along those values, I would imagine. And I would and, share, too, that um, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. I, I would just share and I, I say this because I also teach mental health law and, and I work on, you know, lawyer well-being that 
we have deep concerns about the use of technology and human well-being. And just this week, uh, the case of uh, Seattle schools sued Meta Platforms, which is the the big oversight company that you know relates to TikTok, Facebook, Snapchat, Instagram. And the basis of the claim was public nuisance for having directly targeted addictive content that is also negative and is undermining the confidence of these students, is creating uh, in there, you know, they're alleging uh, self-harm, uh, despair in students, and they just can't turn it off. And I think that keeping all of that in mind, we have to uh, really temper our use of technology with our students because it's a, in law school, certainly a very stressful environment already. And what they need is human support. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think too, I'll take it back to, you know, as Jenny was saying, it's so important for us. It's a, it's a matter of pride in the work that we do in integrity in, you know, I think a lot of times, anytime you see something happen uh, at a law school that involves a final exam, there is some comment that says, this was your one job, right? I mean, <laughs> teaching them is, is our job and assessing them is our job. And so we certainly um, come at it from that approach. And I think too, though, the, the flip side is helping students to understand and value their own processes and development, right? Because they've had opportunities to cheat. They've had, I mean, that's existed. That's mm -hmm. time immemorial. It existed when I was in law school, before I was in law school, it exists now. There are ways that one can, a, a determined person can try to cheat, you know, depending on the class and the assessment nature. But we want students to value the process and what they're learning. And I think part of that is being very explicit with students about why we're doing things the way we do it to enhance their learning and their ability to go out into practice and do what they need to do as lawyers um, and develop those, those skill sets and that knowledge and that we believe they're capable of. It. And that's why we're asking them to do it, right? We have every faith that they are here and they are able to do it. And so we ask them to do it because they can. Um, and then if I can um, actually go, all the way back, Ryan, to mm -hmm. uh, the the question you said you you almost had, but then you thought I'd shot down, which is the the tutoring idea. Yes, um, I'll, I'll push back on that a little bit, and I'll, I'll do it saying um, by the time I tried to play around with Chat GPT myself, and and also some of the Chat GPT detectors, right? Is it AI detection right. software? Um, Chat GPT is now so overwhelmed that you can't get in. <laughs> um, and it, it, it's been that way apparently for a, a little while, at least the last um, week or so that I've been uh, trying to get in. And so I, I wanted to play around with some things. But in any event, so I haven't been able to play with this idea. But here's what I'll say. Our students are accessing resources that we have no control over the quality. Right, right. Right. They, they go on YouTube and they find some channel of some person who claims to be able to give them the secrets to law school um, the secrets to understanding contract law, the secrets to understanding this, that, and the other. And they watch those videos. They get outlines from places like Quimby. They get outlines from colleagues uh, who they may or may not have any idea um, the what went into creating that outline, how, how um, effective that outline proved to be, whether the professor is still teaching the class mm -hmm. the same way. Um, you know, so there, there are all kinds of things that our students are already accessing and we have no control over it. 
And so I do think that one thing we want to do is to teach our students how to be critics of the information that they receive and they rely on and how to do that independent evaluation. Um, it is one of the things that is often it is one of the things that is often discussed in uh, legal research and writing courses where we're talking to them about research and the importance of evaluating their sources, whether those sources are primary source, well, primary sources and, and how effective they are, but especially secondary sources and especially as they're able to get access to information on the internet. Mm -hmm. um, and, and when I say the internet, I mean beyond like your Lexis and Westlaw and Bloomberg, right? And so we're always talking to students in that class, at least, about evaluating their sources. And I think that um, in academic success courses, uh, we try to introduce that same concept, evaluating where you're getting your information from. And I know a lot of professors build that into their classes. And so I think chat GPT simply becomes a part of that conversation and helping them to think critically about how they're using it. But I could certainly see it being useful to a student. Let's say, um, you know, a student is really struggling with a particular concept. And so they ask ChatGPT to give them um, an explanation of the concept plus some examples. Mm -hmm. Use that to try to improve their understanding. And then here's the key part. Go talk to your professor, mm -hmm. right? Take that information, do what you can to develop your own knowledge and increase your understanding until the point to the point where you think you've got a better fix on it. And then go talk to your professor and make sure that that is where you're supposed to be and that those are good examples and that you do now have that better understanding. So it's evaluating what you're doing, knowing its caveats, and then getting a check on it with the expert who is available to you. I think you both kind of touched on, you know, the issue of technology's larger role in learning. And one of the things that, that Jenny, you and I chatted about before um, before we hopped on was you know, technology's role in learning and is it an interference in, in learning in, in the classroom? And so I wanted to kind of go into that a little bit more and and see, you know, have you have you seen technology interfere with students learning, you know, especially throughout the pandemic and now that we're at the other side of it, has it changed the way you engage? Has it been a hindrance? Um, you know, what what things have you do you have to say about that? I enjoyed being forced to go online during the pandemic uh, because it was a challenge as a professor, especially with a large classroom, to see what would work. And I decided, because I could tell they were so stressed, these poor students and scared, that I would distract them like crazy. So I went completely hyper-Socratic method and called on everybody. And I really had very low absence rates. <laughs> People were just glad for that. And and I realized it doesn't, uh, uh, you know, there are things that we can do with it. But I would like to also add, in addition to our responsibility as professors to make this technology work, I think that there's a substantive piece about technology that we need to teach internet law. We need to understand, for example, and Dean Wilson's going to smile when I say this, but that our communication right now involving the internet is essentially space law, right? So I write in that field to a degree, but the fact of the matter is it's not that regulated and it's a process of negotiation at the global level. You've got, you know, students need to understand um, essentially 
the law in the United States and how it's playing out around the world already. And there are tremendous inequities in broadband access around the country. There mm-hmm. are tremendous free speech issues and First Amendment issues related to whether an Internet platform is actually producing or curating speech. These are happening right now. And we need to be preparing students to be the legal watchdogs over early regulation of a new industry. Yeah, and I'll, um, I guess, piggyback on that and and sort of take it in a different direction in terms of educating students in getting back to the idea of technical competence. Mm -hmm. AI is already in use in legal practice in a lot of different ways. And in fact, although there's ChatGPT, which is uh, sort of this generic, there's another platform, platform called Harvey Mm -hmm. Uh, that was announced in November that's law specific. And now they're going to monetize it, right? They're planning to put it out to law firms and uh, well, chat GPT will be monetized eventually too, Mm -hmm. which is Mm -hmm. going to be another issue about whether students can really use it the way they might like. But um, Harvey is targeted already at law firms in terms of supplementing the lawyer and giving them resources. And so I think teaching our students about the role of technology in law practice and not necessarily, oh, teaching them how to use different platforms, because that is something, you know, it depends on which platforms your firm has and all mm-hmm. that sort of stuff. But understanding the ways in which that impacts you, confidentiality concerns, um, communications with your client concerns, unauthorized practice of law, depending on how you've used it, uh, all those sorts of things are going to come into play, making sure that you are appropriately billing your client when using AI. All those things come into play and making sure our students understand that you can't just go out and use these platforms without understanding how they work and what they do with your data. So for example, one of the concerns that has to be grappled with if you're going to incorporate Harvey into creating legal documents for particular clients is that you are giving that platform client information. Mm -hmm. And so do you understand the platform well enough to understand what is happening to your client information and that it's being protected appropriately and that you are complying with your obligations to your client, that you're explaining to your client the risks of using that platform, all that sort of thing. And so I think law schools move, schools, I think higher education moves very slowly into um, new developments. And I think we're going to have to start moving a little more quickly uh, in terms of making sure our students are ready for um, practice and thinking about these things. I think, you know, the private sector catches up quickly, obviously. And I know that I've read about a product that's, it's been around for a while, I believe. Um, it, It had, I think initially had to do with, parking tickets and traffic tickets. And it was called like, do not pay, I do believe. Pay. And I, it, yeah, it's, you're right. and it's uh, last I read it, it, I don't know if it's happened or if it, it was coming up soon, but it was already, you know, hearing cases in court and there were templates involved. Well, about, as our, he, he, the, the product being, designer is marketing it to people to use in court. Okay. It is, um, some court rules will permit it, but they don't actually permit the platform, right? right? So that raises presumably anybody using it as a layperson, not a um, not a lawyer. Mm-hmm. Um, but it raises a ton of issues in terms of because you're so 
for listeners who don't know, the the platform itself, Do Not Pay, initially was helping people create forms and how to respond to traffic tickets and file right, things in right. court, which sometimes is okay and sometimes it isn't. There are some platforms like LegalZoom and um, there, there's one in particular with bankruptcy that have gotten into trouble in terms of unauthorized practice of law because they go too far from being clerical into, oh, let me tell you which bankruptcy exemption applies to you and show you exactly which forms you should fill out based on the information you've mm-hmm. provided, which is moving into providing you know legal guidance. And so, but this platform, one of the things they've done is they've they've developed a, essentially it uses your iPhone to listen to what's happening in court and mm-hmm. then it feeds into an earpiece to tell you how to respond to what is being said in court. Um, that is most definitely the yeah. practice of law. Yes. Um, and I think, and and actually the the person who has started it has made it fairly clear at least in the article I saw the quotes from him suggest that he knows that's exactly what he's doing and he's trying to push the envelope even though he knows he is um probably crossing some some legal <laughs> lines um at least that's my take yeah. on, I mean, on what I read it's an interesting but, extension of like you're saying the private sector moves faster this yeah. is already being incorporated into real world practice so like you were saying, you know, it it is something that we'll have to move faster on mm-hmm. in high, in the higher education and law school field to make sure that students are aware of these technologies, mm-hmm. what they could be, um, you know, potentially going up against in court, but also yeah. might be dealing on the other side. You know, like you said, there are a lot might be legal issues at play with if, even the utilization of it. Um, so I think there's you know, one more thing too, and these are businesses. Right. And I think that law students should be learn to work with the business world and understand that they have a profit motive as they should. Right. <laughs> and we've seen this in the privacy industry, you know, trying to convince the public everybody needs surveillance cameras, every business needs surveillance cameras. And then they didn't really. And half of them get broken and not used. And, and I sometimes see the same thing with legal tech. Like you get a brand new mousetrap doesn't mean it's a good one. Right. And they, right. they're always selling it as the next best thing. And some people who are really into their tech, um, almost like a hobby, always say, you know, they're on top of it when it actually sometimes might be that it didn't really help their, their work at all. Mm-hmm. And I think that law students need to be savvy when somebody's trying to sell them something. Well, I think that's good advice. Absolutely. Um, you know, an, another layer to that, though, in terms of the the do not pay and and some of the other platforms that you know have have skirted the line or or sometimes crossed the line into um, practicing law via AI, and maybe not AI quite as sophisticated as as Chat GPT until recently, but is the idea of access to justice, right? A lot of these Mm -hmm. came around by platforms that were created to provide some help to people who otherwise cannot afford um, legal help. And that exists, you know, sometimes they're able to get help through legal aid societies, but sometimes they don't qualify. Either they're just across the, the threshold or the area of law that they need help in isn't an area of law that the, the legal aid organization um, can assist with. And so in, in particular, some of the ones that deal with bankruptcy were all about, you know, helping people get access to, um, to assistance when they weren't going to be able to get a lawyer. So 
you know, we still have to deal with the unauthorized practice of law issues and the reasons that those exist, right? The I, One of the cases that this came up in, in Ray Patterson, the whole reason the judge started figuring things out is because, at least I think it was in Ray Patterson, but there were there were mistakes, right? Mistakes in, in some of the decisions made. Um, and so that's one of the reasons why we don't mm-hmm. like software giving legal advice. Uh, and, and then we also worry about um, the ability to then recover damages and deal with those things, uh, which is not to say that humans can't make mistakes either. Um, but at least as humans and lawyers, we owe duties of competence and and are held to account in other ways. But I do think that in terms of practice, keeping up with the technology, this and this is one of the things you're seeing in a lot of the articles now is people thinking about, okay, no, this stuff is not going to replace us. There are things that mm-hmm. we do as lawyers that it, it, it cannot replace. But can it make us more efficient in ways that make legal assistance more affordable to some people um, who otherwise can't afford it? I think those things are worth evaluating and figuring out how you do them ethically and appropriately. Um, and and again, with the right technology. I think anything that is built for the law is going to take into consideration things that um, are unique to the law and that aren't taken into consideration for more generic platforms. And But going back to Jenny's point, you have to evaluate. They're a business right. and, and they are out to market a product and make some money. So you still have to apply your, your knowledge. Right. And this uh, reminds me of something that's been rattling around in my head lately related to well, healthcare. So we have more AI in healthcare. We even have in, on college campuses AI kiosks that you can do a mental health check in if you're a college student or it's late at night. And the fact of the matter is, it may be appealing to them because they don't want to talk to a human being. And it's made me think about the legal profession. Are there certain things that the public really? <laughs> They, they don't want to share with another human being, even if they're an attorney supposed to be acting in their best interests. Would they like truly to just craft a will or some power of attorney in private, you know, and um, and and just find a way to use this technology for certain things? And I don't know the answer to that yet, but it makes me question whether all, we are really training our law students to be good people with mm-hmm. people too, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I think the face, there's a lot to be said for the face-to-face aspect, especially when you start talking about that mental health screening um, things as well. It, I would worry if um, an AI kiosk can read, you know, body language or facial cues or things if someone's being hesitant or it's obvious if I'm face-to-face, if someone is in distress, but maybe their straight words don't, you know, don't relay that information to the to the key. They tried these with veterans as well. And the veterans really liked not having a human being reading their faces. They just wanted to be able to express themselves. Mm-hmm. And I shouldn't generalize about this, but the research was fascinating that there are mm. certain aspects of our lives where we typically have needed professional assistance where we really like our privacy. Right. Yeah, that's right. You know, Ryan, circling back to um, an issue you raised earlier in terms of how did, um, you know, our transition to uh, remote education Mm -hmm. through COVID impact classroom teaching and and what things have we carried with us? You know, one of the things that I actually really liked about when we were, were teaching online is the ability to have all students interacting 
um, at the same time. Uh, you know, in, in a typical law school class, we I am having a conversation with a handful of students, yes, right? There's right, a back right. and forth. And the expectation is that other students are engaged in their mind, right? They are answering the questions too, and they're evaluating their answers against the answers given and so on. Um, but usually I can only get answers from a handful of students. And one of the things that, you know, I was able to do when we were um, via Zoom is ask questions and require them all to engage with me via chat, which I actually really liked because I could make them all participate. I could follow up with students who seemed to be, you know, maybe headed in the wrong direction because I could do that separately um, and could summarize answers and go to particular students to expand on a certain point right. that I wanted. And right. there right. are ways- a big barrier, right? It does. It does. Right. And it requires them depending on the size of the class and, and the extent to which you're able to track it, you can require them to engage in ways that they might otherwise have disconnected. Um, and so I enjoyed that. And, you know, you can find ways to bring that into the, the traditional classroom as well. I will admit it's a bit clunkier, at least the ways I have found so far, I think are a bit clunkier. Um, but still certain, you know, things for us to think about in terms of ways that we were creative when we went online to mm -hmm. ensure continued engagement, uh, how do we continue that creativity into our traditional classrooms uh, and engaging students? And so I, I think that was one nice thing that came out of um, a difficult situation was um, causing a lot of us to evaluate um, ways to teach to achieve our, our learning objectives and to achieve our engagement objectives that um, hopefully, and I think in talking to many of our colleagues has continued. I think it's fascinating. I mean, like you said, the technology is not going anywhere here. <laughs> and, you know, one thing that I've kind of arrived at, at least for now in the course of, you know, reading about this leading up to our, our, our talk today is, you know, it, it started off a couple of weeks or a month ago when this all came out um, and everybody was afraid of it and and everybody was afraid that everyone was going to cheat and no one was going to know. But it's kind of arrived now with, you know, the, the positives that come out of it and the realization that it's not going anywhere and how can we use it for the best benefit. And it's not that different in the adaptations that we've made over the past several years. Uh, when presented with circumstances involving technology that we never thought that we would have to deal with before. So um, I think you've laid that out. Both of you have laid that out really well. Um, and it's it's going to be interesting to see how it continues to unfold. Are there um, any any extra thoughts that we didn't touch upon that maybe you wanted to talk about with the listeners a little bit, uh, either of you? I just wanted to add, you know, we've been saying that technology is not going anywhere. Well, that's just true. It's because we're here. We created this. Right. And, you know, I always talk about rise of the machines. I always think it's rise of the humans. Every single time where we think some tech is going to get in our way, we find a way around it and keep moving on. And I'll give you one example, because I've written on drones and uh, fascinating technology that cuts both ways, a little bit like what we're talking about. And when they used it in prisons, I remember thinking, oh, no, you know, this constant surveillance. This is so uh, 1984. And mm -hmm. then I read stories where prisoners were getting their friends to send drones with cell phones and <laughs> drop them over the fence. And I thought, rise of the humans. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we well, always find a way to champion this stuff. Right. Well, necessity and, is the mother of invention, right? So that's right. Yes. And I know it's serious business, but I, I, uh, humans have a kind of a 
quirkiness that I think it makes us resilient. Well, I think you, I mean, that's a, a, a fun example because I think that um, no matter the technology's original intent, humans will always find a way to utilize it in the way that best suits them. And that's almost always not how it originates. <laughs> 100%. And I think that you know, I, I guess the overarching thought for me as I've gone through all of this is is just back to the idea that both in law school and in practice um, and in law school for students, but also for faculty, I think the question is always about valuing the importance of the process and valuing what we are doing to get to a particular outcome. And so figuring out how to make the technology advance our process um, and improve our process and improve our knowledge rather than to replace us. Mm -hmm. Right. So, um, and, and I think, you know, we're, we're always going to find that way, especially if we keep the idea of process um, in the forefront for us. And I, I think about that, you know, the idea that students would want to take the shortcut to never figure out how to write the the analysis, to never figure out how to describe the law independently, or that lawyers would want to take the shortcut to have AI draft their brief. And then I imagine myself either as a student standing in front of a, a professor trying to explain myself and answer the tough questions and apply my thoughts in this really wonderfully written essay that aren't my thoughts right? Um, or to myself as a lawyer, I, I still remember writing a, a brief as a young lawyer and my, the partner I worked with was arguing um, the motion and the opposing counsel took issue with, an, a, case, with a case and said, oh, but they haven't told you about Purdue three, which is, you know, the, the, third in a trilogy of cases. And I, we had cited Purdue too. And the partner looks back at me like, do I need to know about Purdue three? <laughs> and the answer is no, Purdue three has absolutely nothing to do with the issues being raised in this, in this motion, in this brief. And so I'm able to quickly answer mm -hmm. that, but could you imagine if I hadn't actually written the right. essay or, yeah. or the brief and and had no idea. I don't know about Purdue three. I didn't do the research. I didn't do the writing. Right. Um, like that would be um, devastating in a number of ways. And so from the point of law student to, to lawyer, being able to do that so that you can then answer the question um, and respond to the judge's questioning and represent your client effectively and, and competently. I mean, that's what it's all about. Yeah. And the, just as you said at the beginning of this, both of you, the, you know, if you don't do the work yourself, it's going to catch up to you. Um, and that's true with every new rollout of, of technology that people are worried about taking over, you know, uh, uh, our. And if you do you know. do the work yourself, you win. Yeah, there exactly. you go. <laughs> well, I think this was really uh, a really interesting conversation with with two folks that um, I don't get to talk to enough and that I think people will be interested to hear about um, both of you weigh in on a topic that's really, you know, really moving really quickly right now. So thank you for taking the time to jump on here with me. And um, uh, I am sure that there will be plenty of opportunities to uh, talk a little bit more about this as the technology and the, the news items evolve. So thanks for joining us today, both of you. Thanks, Ryan. Thank you.